Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I've had thought on my mind, and some of it is a little bit kind of leftover things from last week's sermon that I didn't get to. Occasionally, ministers prepare for sermons and they come into the pulpit with way more material than they could possibly handle. And I think it's maybe common for ministers to be afraid that they're not going to have enough to fill up an appropriate amount of time. But as often as not, I think a lot of our ministers tend to err on the side of maybe going a little too long and speaking too long on something, maybe having too much to say. And I think it was Mark Twain who said... If I'd had more time, I'd have written you a shorter letter. So there's something to be said in terms of the preparation for something. It's easy to do this thing that in business we refer to as show up and throw up. You just show up and you just start talking and talking and talking. You haven't organized your thoughts and you can spend an hour, two hours just doing that. But generally the audience kind of checks out after a little while and it's not as profitable as if you had spent a little time saying what's really important for us to say and uh, focus on that. So hopefully in in the course of last Sunday's sermon, I did some editing on the fly here. I called an audible and cut a lot of my material out of the sermon and just stuck with things that were uh, more immediate and profitable. But I was left with these leftovers and I'm prone to getting onto my family for not eating the leftovers that get stuck in our refrigerator. So in keeping with that admonition, I'm going to try to use my leftovers here and, and give you something important. But it is sort of a little bit of a separate thought. I'm going to set this thought before your minds. Do you believe you are preserved in Christ? Is that something you affirm? I think a lot of people have different interpretations of what is meant by preserved. And let me explain what I mean by it. When we talk about the preservation of the saints, what I mean by that and what I believe the Bible teaches is that what Jesus Christ did is utterly effectual. It cannot be overturned. It is an unassailable work that no matter what else happens in this world, no matter what you may do, no matter what someone else may do, no matter what kind of false ideas you might get introduced to, if Jesus Christ is your intercessor, He's standing there on your behalf before God and saying, that's one of my sheep, My righteousness is now His righteousness. You cannot be anything other than preserved by His perfect work. We believe that. That's one of the fundamentals that our church stands on, is the idea that we are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ that makes you stand holy before God. It is not your personal performance in righteousness, right? Any religious movement that says your personal performance in righteousness is what makes you righteous before God, and and that's what preserves you, is doing one of two things. They're either saying that you're perfect, which is clearly not true, or they're saying, well, God accepts something less than perfection, right? What Jesus did was He came and made it so that you could be imperfect and God will just say, well, we'll just kind of overlook it. If you do that, then God's not holy, right? He's moving the goalposts. Well, if that's the case, if God can move the standard and say you don't have to be holy, 
then why do we have to do any of this stuff anyway, right? If God can accept imperfection, then there's no need for any of this uh, that we talk about in the intercession of Christ. We should believe, and the Bible teaches, that we are preserved in Christ. What Christ did is all you need such that you're regarded as holy before God. That's all there is to it. As I started thinking about this idea, I thought about how we're referred to as hard shells. And as I was looking through my Bible, I turned to Psalm 37. And I want to look at Psalm 37 today. I have referred to this in my Bible, I've kind of got it penciled in there, as the hard shall psalm. I mean, if you're a hard shall, you hammer down on all the things the Bible says about what God shall do, and you say, we have to believe those things. Those are the promises of God. If you believe those promises of God, well, Psalm 37 ought to be uh, very much resonant with your heart in that matter. I believe it uses the term shall 35 times in this psalm. So, you know, we talk about the three shalls of Matthew 1.21, and that gets preached a lot among the old Baptists. But here's a psalm that's got 35 of them. And we have to accept them and believe that they're true. But the thought that came to my mind in keeping with this idea about our preservation was this. One cannot be a hard shall without preservation. If these shalls that God is going to do for His people are out there, they are of no benefit whatsoever if you're not preserved unto being a beneficiary of those works. You see what I'm saying? So hard shallism is inherently tied to the idea of the preservation of God's people. Right? You can't separate the two. The moment you are a hard shall and you believe those things shall come to pass, it's evident that you also believe you're preserved by the work of God. There's just no two ways around that. Now let's look at Psalm 37 because I think there's a lot in here that's relevant to our day. People say the Bible, well, it talks about this, how things were in an ancient Near East Jewish society several thousand years ago and you know, it's not really relevant to modern people. Well, this is David. This is a psalm of David. And I'm telling you, the circumstances he found himself in are so similar to the way we see the world around us today. Now, there are differences. He was a Jewish king, and he, he had a palace and, and all these sorts of things. He had a different role and whatnot. But there's things about the psalms that David wrote that they're in samples to us, and they teach us something about how we see the world around us. And though David was a king, and and we're not kings of our day and age, we still see parallels between the way David saw the world and our world today. Look at this. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Now look, I'm telling you, if you had to apply that, we're going to end all fretting over the working of evildoers in this world. We're just going to shut it down. Social media would pretty much evaporate. Because probably like 50 to 75% of it is people griping about what they perceive to be the evildoers of this world out there, no matter what side they're on, right? The people who hate what you believe think you're an evildoer and they're complaining about it. And the people of God who see evil things being done, they, they're out there complaining about it, fretting about it, right? 
They're fretting about it. Well, this says fret not about those things, right? People get stirred up on this. They get stirred up on current events. I do too. I get just as stirred up about it as anybody. So I get it. So it's kind of convicting when I looked at it. And and in the Bible, it says, don't fret about this. Am I a non-fretter? Are you a non-fretter? I'm a fretter as often as not. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Well, they all just seem to get ahead. The evil people are all getting ahead, and God's people are suffering down here. Isn't it awful? It just seems like the evil people get away with everything, and fret not about it. It's what the Word of God says. And why is it? For they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. God is going to call all these things into judgment at some point. That's why you're not to fret about it. We fret about it oftentimes because we think it's not in the timing that we'd like to see it happen. We'd like to see judgment executed quickly on everyone in a temporal sense and have it be fair and just as to the extent that's possible in a temporal world that's fallen. But the Lord says He shall do this. They'll soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Focus on what we are supposed to do rather than worrying so much about what evildoers are going to do. The fact is, evildoers are going to do evil. That's why they call them evildoers. It shouldn't come as a surprise. And uh, the Bible abundantly attests to this. What we should be doing is trusting the Lord and doing good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. I had a conversation with Brother Randy the other day. He was like, man, tough times could be coming. You know, sometimes you wonder, well, how's the, is, is the Lord going to feed us? And then it, you look in the Bible and you see verses like this and you say, yeah, the Lord's going to feed us. We have to trust in this. I think where many of us struggle is in some respects in American society, we could be said to be fat, dumb, and happy. And... We've been fed so liberally in so many ways that we don't even really know what hunger is, honestly. We're concerned about, is God going to feed us with the things that I want to eat? Not so much, am I going to have enough to eat so that I'm going to survive, right? That's a whole other level of being fed. If you think about the the hierarchy of needs that's out there, you've seen people talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're so far up the pyramid of needs that when we talk about eating and what are we going to eat, we're haggling over are we going to have Mexican food at the restaurant tonight or are we going to go over here and have seafood or we're going to have steak? Oh, I don't want that. I'm not getting what I want. I want I want a chicken fried steak. Well, we're rarely dealing with the issue of we have literally nothing to eat. Right? We're very far removed from that. This promise, though, is that the Lord's going to feed us. And we shouldn't really be so worried about those things, although we may, we may think about them a lot. Verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now that is not every desire that's ever come up in your heart. He's give you the desires of your spiritual heart. He will give you the spiritual desires that you have that are needful to you, but not every single thing you've ever thought you wanted. We all have a lot of carnal desires. We still maintain a carnal heart, if you will, a carnal mind that fills us with all kinds of desires for things that are not really needful or profitable or helpful. 
And it's not saying it's going to deliver on all those desires. It's talking about the spiritual needs you have. Verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. God's going to give you the spiritual sustenance you need, and He's going to feed you. Verse 6, and He shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. I mean, there you go. That's 50% of social media right there, is fretting about wicked men bringing evil things to pass and profiting from it. And all of us complaining about it, right? Fretting about it. It's been there since the beginning. It's inevitable in a wicked world that has wicked people calling the shots. It's just absolutely inevitable. We shouldn't be surprised by it, but we are. We're outraged by it, and we probably spend too much time worrying about it instead of resting in the Lord. What's your inclination when you hear something? I don't know who you regard in your mind as this is really the person who is the epitome of evil in this world right now. I could probably name a few people, and I'd see some heads nodding, but I'm going to resist that temptation. Some of you know what I'm talking about, and you hear anything said about this person, yeah, that's just evil, it's going to be bad. What's your tendency to get stirred up over the mention of what one of those people is doing or to rest in the Lord? I mean, if you just, I'm just left at a default thing, your minister's not standing there in front of you watching your reactions to what's going on in the news. And what am I going to see, right? Am I going to see you fussing and fretting about it? Or am I going to see you saying, man, I'm going to rest in the Lord. I see what this person's doing. I'm just going to rest in the Lord. Well, I know the answer to that because I know it in my own heart. I know what the default setting is. And this is why the Bible regularly admonishes us about these things. Your default setting, your carnal mind that snaps back and frets about things is not the way we are to react. And the spiritual reaction is to step back and say, I see this, by the way, My Lord told me about this. The Lord told me this is how it's going to be. I'm going to rest in the Lord. See what I'm saying? You're going to have to apply the spiritual mind to the things you encounter in this world if you're going to have that reaction because it will not well up from you as a matter of nature. Your natural mind, which is usually the first thing to react, is usually going to be the one that frets and not the one that rests. Now look at this one. And it's really digging into us here. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. I mean, that's rough, man. That is rough. When you start thinking about the evil that's done in this world, you can get so upset over it that you start getting really angry about it. And believe me, I get it. But this is calling us to have a different mindset about these things. We know the Lord has told us they exist. We know that the Lord is going to call all of this into judgment at some point. So we're not to fret about it. We're to rest in the Lord in that matter. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. You hear that in the Beatitudes Jesus is quoting. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt 
diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. This is going to be brought into order. Now, where we get upset is because it's not brought in order in the way we would like to see it brought into order. You want to see certain things prosecuted and taken care of. Evidently, evil things are going on. You want to see justice come in and take care of it on a temporal level. But that's not how God does this. He's going to ultimately call all of this into judgment. Verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. The Lord can look at the wicked of this world, and He's looking at it from a different perspective than we are. He's the God of all things. And any creature that's going to rise up and rebel against God, honestly, it's laughable from God's perspective. It doesn't mean He thinks it's a laughing matter. It means that it's absolutely ridiculous that someone would try to oppose God in that way. And He knows, I'm bringing this into justice. It's totally ridiculous. But we lose sight of that because we feel like, well, these people are getting away with everything. God doesn't see it that way. And God's got His timing in dealing with this. And as often as not, discipleship's about coming to terms with God's timing in things. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy and to slay such as be of upright conversation. They're out to get us, right? This is the they that people refer to in their conversation. Well, they're doing this to us. And they, they're going to make us do this and they're going to make us do that. It's kind of the nebulous wicked out there and it's there. It's not as if the Bible's saying you're seeing this wrong. These evil people do exist and they, they do horrible and wicked things and they may be out to get you. The Bible affirms that, but we're supposed to take rest in the fact that God's going to bring all this into judgment. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. The things that they do that are designed to destroy you are ultimately going to be their own destruction. The Lord is going to bring that to pass. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Do we believe that? I wonder. Why would we be so upset? You know, one of the complaints is, well, these wicked people, they're out there doing all these terrible things and they're just getting ahead and I'm out here struggling to pay my, my tax bill. I got a Pulaski County tax bill that's due this month. It's, it's wearing me out. I'm looking at it on my desk. I paid my bills earlier this week. I didn't pay that one. I, just, I don't know. I'm going to have to pay it, but I don't like it. Makes me mad. And, and to think that someone else is uh, getting ahead and their taxes aren't really a problem because they're doing evil things and they're getting ahead as a result of it, that kind of annoys me. But the little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. You know, I could get upset over the fact that there's some wicked person in Little Rock who's making millions and millions of dollars. He doesn't think twice about paying his taxes. It's just no big deal to him. But the moment I do that, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, I don't really believe that the little that I have as one of God's children is more or better than the riches he has. I'm expressing some measure of jealousy over the fact that he is more affluent, more capable, has, 
the nicer things, the better privileges. He's really getting ahead in life. If I really believe that the little that I have is better than the riches of many wicked, why would I even care? You see what I'm saying? We're just as prone as anyone else to putting our hearts upon the things of this world that moth and rust destroy. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. These are all shalls in the Bible. See what I'm saying? But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs, and they shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. These are things that are going to come to pass. We may find it unpleasant to see that they're getting ahead in the near term, but that is not how it's going to end for the wicked. This is what is known as, by the way, Psalms 37 is what's referred to as an imprecatory psalm. Some people struggle with the imprecatory psalms. They say, it sounds like God's being mean. You know, He's going to bring these things into punishment. God is love. He should not do that. Right? He shouldn't be that way. That seems like that's the mean God of the Old Testament. You see, if God is love and God is holy and there's evil in the world, there has to be some things that God hates. You follow me? If God is holy and there is evil, God cannot be a lover of evil. You follow me? It's implicit that God hates wickedness and that's why He's going to bring it into judgment. And those who fall outside of the intercession of Christ are going to be the recipients of that judgment. Verse 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. He shall not be utterly cast down. You see that? And then this verse, which everyone knows, I have been young, and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God's going to feed us. He's going to take care of us. We need to believe that. It's David's testimony. It should be our testimony. It says, He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. Now, depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. That is a call upon God's people to persevere in good works, right? You should continue and maintain good works towards your fellow man. This is part of your discipleship. You are encouraged to persevere in the faith, right? But look at the next verse. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not His saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. That verse speaks of preservation. God's saints are preserved forever. That's Christ's work on your behalf. It's unassailable. It cannot be overturned. And if Christ has preserved you, you are preserved. That's just all there is to it. But look at the relationship between verse 28 and verse 27. He says, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. Depart from evil and do good. That's an exhortation to you to behave in a certain way, is it not? It's saying, 
You need to persevere in this sort of behavior. Right? It's an exhortation. It's not a guarantee that you're going to do that. You're being told to do it, and you're being told to do it on the basis of what follows. You see the word for? For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints, they are preserved. You see, your preservation is that upon which an exhortation to persevere in obedience and good works is founded. See what I'm saying? He doesn't say it in the or, I sort of say he starts, but he doesn't start. He actually puts it behind the exhortation. But it's founded upon this idea that you're preserved. You're preserved in Christ. Therefore, you ought to live as you ought. That's the idea. It's one of the reasons that we are distinct on this idea of preservation. And when you think about most in the so-called sovereign grace camps of Christianity who say we believe in tulip doctrine, most of those groups will define the P as the perseverance of the saints. And in fact, if you go back and look at some of the confessions that some old Baptists have signed off on over the years, you will find that language in those confessions. But I think it's very problematic, depending on how someone goes about the business of defining perseverance. Let me put it to you this way. We've seen now that perseverance is sitting on the foundation of your preservation. God has preserved you, therefore you ought to go out and live as you ought to live. But the difference between preservation and perseverance is in who is actually doing what in each of those things. Now, in this preservation that's talked about here, or that we see in the first verse of Jude, which we can turn over and look at that right quick, what we're talking about is a work that God has done. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God. Who did the sanctifying? God sanctified them, right? Now, it got anything to do with your personal obedience. This has to do with the work of Christ. This is your eternal or positional sanctification in Christ. To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. There it is. The reason... I think it's important that we define the P in TULIP as preservation is because that is the direct language of the Bible. I could point you to Jude 1.1 and tell you the Bible says you are preserved in Jesus Christ. That is the language of the Bible. It's unassailable. Now when you start talking about perseverance, that's a whole different matter altogether. You see, this preservation here is something God did. You didn't have anything to do with it. It's the work of Christ, and it preserved you, period, end of story. Now, if I tell you to persevere, I'm calling upon you to do something. You need to persevere, and what if I say, well, you need to persevere in coming to church. Does that require something of you? Are you going to have to make some decisions of your will to say, I'm going to get up, I'm going to get dressed, I'm going to have some breakfast, I'm going to get to church? Or is God going to levitate you into the church building by a monergistic act of God? No, you are called upon to persevere in things like attending the church. But it is by no means certain that you will do that if you don't actually just get up and do it, right? The very fact that 
Perseverance is an exhortation tells you that it's something that you do in discipleship. It is not something that Christ did to populate heaven. You follow me in that? It's stated another way, preservation is a monergistic work of God. It speaks of the efficacy of Christ's work and how you're going to end up in glory someday. Christ preserved you, right? Perseverance is an exhortation to obey God. It is synergistic. That means God enables you with His Spirit by faith to obey Him. That provision is ever there. God's people are able to obey God. But they have to choose to do so. You follow me? You have to fight these things to be able to obey God. You're dealing with your old man. You have this natural inclination to disobey God. And so you actually have to choose to do these things. Let me show you what I mean by that in the distinction here in Ephesians chapter 6. So we looked at preservation in Jude and we saw that that is an act of God. It's a done deal. It's absolutely unassailable. But look at this place where perseverance, the actual word, is used in Scripture. This is talking about the armor of God, right? We all know this passage of Scripture. Verse 17, it says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, is that perseverance right there something you're absolutely guaranteed to do? In the way that you are guaranteed to be preserved by the work of Christ? It is not. That's the problem that comes up when people start saying, well, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. You see, because perseverance involves your will and your obedience to God, it is not guaranteed to the same degree that Christ's work on your behalf makes you and preserves you before the throne of divine justice. Really important that we see that. Now, this is another question that came to mind. And we'll maybe consider this as we close here. When you look out and you think about the world you live in, do you view eternity through the lens of time? Or do you view time through the lens of eternity? What do I mean by that? I mean, when you interpret and you generate the feelings you have about the world around you, those feelings that tend to make you fret, tend to make you angry and upset because you see all the injustices and crazy things going on in this world. When you do that, are you looking at the world through the lens of time or through the lens of eternity? You see what I'm saying? I submit that if you're getting upset about those things and you're fretting and worrying, and that's kind of the dominant spirit that is overtaking your mind in these things, that what you're doing is you're interpreting the things you see around you through the lens of time. You're looking at temporal circumstances, and you're saying, they just all seem terrible. There's terrible people. Wickedness is abounding. Evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. And because I'm not thinking of this in terms of the big picture, I'm just going to look at it through the events that surround me here in time, I'm going to have a very negative attitude, a very carnal attitude about the things I see around me. I'm going to interpret everything as if all of the stakes are in the here and now, right? And like there's not a bigger picture going on. 
And I think what the Bible calls us to do is to look at time through the lens of eternity. In other words, when you see all these things going on, much as what we saw in Psalm 37, we shouldn't be downtrodden about that because we need to look at it through the promises of God knowing that we're going to win in the end. God is going to emerge victorious over all of this. If we're not joyful about that, then we haven't laid hold of it to the degree that we need to. We're making it apparent that we think too much about present temporal circumstances and we don't think enough about eternity. I mean, even if you live a long time in this world, let's say everybody in this room is going to live to be 100 years old. That is nothing compared to eternity. I mean, we sing when we've been there 10,000 years, right? We sing that all the time. What's 100 years compared to 10,000 years? Our lives are just a vapor. We claim to believe all these shalls, and God's promised us that He's going to call these things into judgment, and He's going to deliver His people, and that He's preserved His people. Think about this. Whatever's wrong with this world, I mean, if we sat down there at lunch and everybody got a little time to tell us all the things they think are wrong with this world. We're going to come up with a whole bunch of different answers. Everybody's going to have their particular flavor of it. There's probably a lot of overlap in the ideas and whatnot. But now, if you could come up with a temporal solution for all the top five or top ten things that you think are wrong with this world, how would that compare to the fact that God is going to fix it all at some point? Right? I mean, we get wound up on elections and things like this. People get really animated, especially around election time. You see a lot of people getting animated over political things. And I'm not saying you shouldn't vote or you shouldn't have political views. You should be a good citizen. You should do what you think is best there. However, our deliverance is not in those things. If all your candidates get voted in, it's not going to fix the problem. The only thing that's ever going to fix the problem is God. And the only thing that's going to fix your attitude problem is if you stop looking at the world through the lens of time, thinking about all the little temporal fixes that we could do here. And there. Well, if we get this person in the White House and we get this person in the governor's office and we could have these bills passed and these turned down and we could, you know, those things are fine. I know they, they're real in our world. But they're not the way we should view the world. You see what I'm saying? We have to view the world through the promises of God and through the hope we have and knowing full well. Even the best solution that any of us could come up with to any temporal problems we have, we know that on the backside of it, it's going to be laden with a thousand other temporal problems that we're going to be upset about once that comes around, right? We know that's the case. But at some point... God's going to bring all this into judgment. God is going to perfectly fix all of this. Perfect justice, perfect rule of God is what we're headed towards. And it's so vastly beyond what we might see as the temporal fixes in this world that we might come up with in our minds for the here and now. That I think if we thought more about where we're headed and what God has done for us, our preservation in Christ... It would help us to deal better with the temporal circumstances we find ourselves in. I know it would me. I bring this up because I find that my mind gets inundated, I guess I would say, by temporal concerns. 
And one of the things I'm trying to learn along my path of discipleship is that we're not going to fix all those things in time. We do what we can, trust God, obey His Word, try to be a faithful disciple of Christ. But don't be discouraged and don't fret over the temporal circumstances we have. We're standing on the promises of God. We're standing on the shalls, right? The 35 shalls of Psalm 37. And if we're thinking rightly about that, maybe we won't fret as much. Maybe we'll rest in the finished work of Christ. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.